the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. This year, the Detroit Today team spent weeks exploring the Flint water crisis through Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. You can hear all of those conversations on season two of our podcast, Created Equal. Today, we'll hear my conversation with Dr. Mona that kicked off the series. And we'll hear from Democratic Congressman Dan Kildee, who lives in and represents Flint. That's all coming up on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Mona Hanna Atisha blew the lid off the Flint water crisis. She's the pediatrician who first documented elevated blood lead levels in children in Flint. And she's the author of the book, What the Eyes Don't See, the focus of our work all summer as we explored the crisis in Flint. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Dr. Mona about her book and her work in Flint. We found it on the principle. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Four years ago, we had an environmental crisis right here in Michigan, in the United States, that highlighted just how precious access to clean water is. When an emergency manager switched Flint's water source from the Detroit system to the Flint River, but failed to take proper precautions, the entire city of Flint was exposed to unsafe levels of lead. It was catastrophic, easily the most devastating public health crisis in recent memory. Dr. Monahanna Atisha, a pediatrician in Flint, was among the first to notice elevated lead levels in Flint's children and to sound the alarm about the crisis. Since then, she's fought without hesitation or break to get officials to pay attention to fix the water system, and to address the effects of the lead exposure. And she wrote a book about the crisis, What the Eyes Don't See, which details what happened in the city, as well as the intersection between so many different failures that produced the crisis. Dr. Mona, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, it's always great to talk with you. As I said in the open there, one of the things that is so poignant about this book and the way that you tell this story is that it takes in the intersection of so many things that failed, government accountability and transparency, incompetence, disinvestment, infrastructure, environment, advocacy, healthcare, all of them are in there. Talk about all the different issues that came together to create this huge, massive public health crisis. Yeah, this book, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, you know, who are the, who are the culprits of this crisis? And they want me to, like, often name, like, villains that created this crisis. And it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot more nuanced because it is the intersections of all these different, often longstanding issues. Um, it's the, you know, it's issues of capitalism and, and disinvestment and how, for example, General Motors left its birthplace and, you know, we lost so many jobs in Flint and that disinvestment created unemployment and, and made things like poverty and violence endemic to the city of Flint. It's also about longstanding issues of racism in the city, um, from things like blockbusting and redlining that created um, a city center that was so disenfranchised and where many folks um, left the city and with lack of regionalization um, made it unsustainable for the city to support its utility and, you know, for example, for water and other public infrastructure needs. Um, so there's many, many longstanding causes um, that created the Flint water crisis. It wasn't one person and one decision, but it was almost a perfect storm of many issues from, like I said, disinvestment, racism, austerity, capitalism, uh, a whole slew of issues that that led to the decision to change that water source Mm -hmm. and then what happened. And and one of the really, I think, harrowing dynamics here uh, as this unfolded was the fact that state officials initially said The water was safe, that it was fine, that despite what people were reporting in terms of uh, reactions to the water that some people were having, uh, funny smells, funny tastes, they were saying it's fine. And even you initially believed that the state was right. 
Talk us through that period uh, about how you started to doubt what they were saying. Yeah, and I think that really kind of gets at the title of my book, What the Eyes Don't See. Like, even I was blinded to what was going on. I didn't see anything differently, you know, in my patients because uh, lead is a a silent pediatric epidemic. Kids don't present with, like, acute symptoms of lead poisoning. Um, But it was kind of slowly, you know, disseminated through the system. Um, But, yeah, for a year and a half, the state was reassuring everybody that everything was fine. And you remember those pictures on TV, brown, discolored water coming out of people's taps. And for so many people, it was easy for us to say, oh, this can't be real. How can this be? Like, how can, like, brownish water be coming out of people's taps? Um, Let's just choose to ignore this because it is about, you know, a different population far away. It's not me and it's not my kids, Um, which is kind of the, the... the thrust of the story is that this was a city, this was a problem that people closed their eyes to, uh, which also very much, you know, is a reference to the title. It's about people, places, and problems we choose not to see, not just in Flint, but everywhere, um, and how really it was our obligation to open our eyes and recognize that there was this injustice happening kind of right outside our back door. Um, so, yeah, so it was the issue was being dismissed despite so many red flags and really early red flags. And I think the most striking red flag is just a few months after the water switch. So the water switch was in April of 2014. Um, by the fall of 2014, General Motors, which was born in Flint and, and still has plants in Flint, uh, noticed that this water was corroding their engine parts. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's mind-boggling. This water was corroding engine parts, our drinking water, and General Motors was allowed to go back to Great Lakes water. Yet throughout this time, the people of Flint were literally told to relax, that everything was okay, that everything was in compliance, even though they knew um, that something was wrong with this water. Yeah. Um, uh, talk about the difference here for children in terms of this lead exposure, that, that um, the denial... Of, about what was going on, of course, affected uh, everybody's health in Flint, and the, the switch had affected everyone's health. And as I said, it, it exposed everybody in Flint to lead poisoning. Um, why is this different and so much more important when we're talking about young people? Yeah, so, you know, the the water issue it was more than just a lead issue. So at first there was uh, bacteria in the water, and we had boil advisories. And then because of all the bacteria, they added a lot of disinfectant, which is chlorine. Because of all the added chlorine, there were skin and eye issues. And then we had a buildup of a chlorine byproduct, something called total trihalomethanes, which is a carcinogen that causes cancer. Um, we had, I think, about nine months of violations of, of that carcinogen. So lots of other issues, um, and but throughout, once again, we were being reassured that everything was okay. Um, and then that all changed, at least for me, with, and I stopped reassuring my patients that everything was okay, was when I heard about the possibility of lead in the water. Um, when a pediatrician hears the word lead, it's... Um, it's a call to action. We, we know what lead does. It's probably the most well-studied poison uh, known to man. We've known what lead has done really for centuries. Uh, it's potent. It's irreversible. And we worry about the children the most because it, it, it attacks a child's developing nervous system. Um, it attacks the core of what it means to be you. And for kids, it means it impacts cognition. It actually drops IQ levels. Um, it can lead to things like developmental disorders, behavioral disorders. Um, it's even been linked to things like criminality. Um, and we now know through incredible science that it also impacts things like epigenetics, which can be passed on through generations, which is like the expression of, of your genes. Um, so as more incredible research comes out, we now incredibly, increasingly know um, that there is no safe level of lead. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the American Academy of Pediatrics, there is not uh, any level of lead that's shown to be of any benefit, and our treatment really should be prevention. Um, so we worry about the kids the most because that is when their brains are developing, and especially the younger children. But lead impacts everybody. Um, subsequent research done after my research also showed lead increases in adult populations um, and as well as lead increases in animal populations. MSU's vet school came in because so many people were concerned about their pets um, and held animal clinics and also showed increases in, in the pets in Flint of lead levels. So it impacts everybody, but, but for kids, it's most detrimental. Mm. 
Uh, I, I want to go back to September of 2015 uh, in a press conference where you're talking about the findings that were beginning to trickle out about Flint's water. I want to play the clip and then have you talk about what you were feeling and thinking during this press conference. This research is concerning. These results are concerning. And when our national guiding organizations tell us primary prevention is the most important thing and that lead poisoning is potentially irreversible, um, then we have to say something. That was uh, that initial sort of sounding of the alarm, I guess, about what was what was going on. Talk about what was going through your mind uh, during that press conference. Yeah, you know, I, I felt great at that press conference. I'm like, awesome, we are finally able to share this research with the public. Um, having that press conference was a bit of an academic no-no. Um, when you do research <laughs> as an academic or physician, it's supposed to go through that peer review process. Right. Uh, and that process takes time. It can take months. It could take up to a year. And I literally walked out of my clinic, and I stood up at a press conference with a growing team of supporters around me and shared this research which really was not what you're supposed to do in academia. And I think one of the most um, incredible accolades I've gotten through this whole process was an award from MIT, which was a disobedience award, uh, specifically for not going through that <laughs> academic process. Um, but, but that our kids didn't have another day. And I wanted to scream these results. Like once I knew these results, I wanted to scream them off a rooftop, uh, you know, off the top of my hospital. I'm like, hey, there's something wrong here. We need to act. Um, so I felt great at this press conference. I'm like, yes, I am doing my duty as a pediatrician. Like, I literally took an oath to, to protect children and to speak up for kids. Um, and I was doing very much my professional, you know, and ethical and moral job as, you know, as a, as a human being to stand up and protect children. Yeah. Um, but but that, that feeling of, yay, we're taking care of kids um, and we're going to protect them just lasted a short period because, um, you know, within minutes uh, the, the after that press conference, the, the, I, was, I began to be kind of denied and attacked. Mm. Talk about your relationship with state officials. That's kind of changed over time. For, for a while, it seemed like maybe they were embracing you. And other times, as you said, you were really at odds with them. Yeah, you know, I think initially when this research came out, um, they there was a period of being at odds and, and the state was saying that my numbers didn't make sense and that, you know, this they didn't add up to their numbers and they were very much kind of dismissing and, and denying these facts just just as they had done with anybody else who throughout this whole process had raised concerns. Uh, the amazing moms, the activists, the journalists, the water scientists, you know, for a year and a half, anybody who had raised concerns about this water issue um, was being denied and dismissed. Um, however, you know, after this press conference, and I think there was an incredible role of you guys, of the media, and of amazing journalists who, who caught on to the story, um, I, then the tide began to turn, and eventually, kind of with our persistence and with kind of fighting back, and with teamwork and with more science, um, the state eventually conceded and admitted that, yes, you know, there is a crisis. Um, and within weeks of that press conference, we went back to Great Lakes treated water um, and obviously since then have been working on our recovery. So, you know, my, my work, my relationship with state and federal officials um, has always been that of a partner. Um, one of my favorite lines, so I grew up, uh, my brother was this kind of Star Trek nut, and I grew up kind of being forced to watch a lot of Star Trek. And there's a line um, that I love from Dr. McCoy who says, you know, damn it, Jim, like I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a prosecutor, I'm a doctor. Um, and I, I think of that line all the time in my head, like I am not a prosecutor, I am a doctor, and my constituents is the children of Flint, and I will work with whomever from whatever political party um, to get whatever I need for not only Flint kids, but as many kids and, you know, the whole entire city as possible. Mm. Um, so that has been kind of my attitude going in. So in many trips to D.C. and many trips to the Capitol Hill, you know, I'm working with whomever, um, both sides of the aisle, because you have to, um, to share the story of Flint and to really share kind of what Flint needs, especially in the long term. I grew up in the 70s when we still had lead and gasoline mm -hmm. for a while. 
style uh, and, and, and in paint. Uh, why was this Why was this worse? There's actually an entire chapter in my book uh, that goes into lead history. Um, so yeah, we used to have a lot more lead in our environment, and it was a really ev- evil, corporate-driven, profit-driven industry that put lead, really forced the use of lead in gasoline and in paint and in plumbing largely to make a profit. Um, there's a whole kind of section in there of, of General Motors and Kettering um, who put lead in gasoline, tetraethyl lead, um, because they had a patent on it, even when they knew it was dangerous. So in the 1960s, 1970s, we did have a lot more lead in, in our environment. And we used to think that it was, it was safe. Those higher levels were safe. Uh, we've learned a lot since then. We have great pa- policies that have restricted the use of lead and paint and gasoline. And for the last few decades, those levels have been coming down. So, yes, people do have less lead exposure now than they did 20, 30 years ago. However, at that same time, we have also learned that there is no safe level of lead, that levels that we did think were okay decades ago when children were, for example, coming to our ERs, our emergency rooms, with acute intoxications and they were seizing and comatose and they needed acute chelation. We don't see that as much anymore because those levels have been coming down so much. But at the same time, we've also learned that there is no safe level of lead, um, that, it should, that we should practice this thing called primary prevention, where children are never supposed to be exposed to lead. Um, so another thing that's nuanced in this whole story is that, yes, children's lead levels increased in Flint, but my research, my work never should have been necessary. We never, we should not be measuring the scope of this crisis by children's lead levels. If we are truly to practice that thing called primary prevention, when we detect lead in our environment, that should be the full stop. That's when we should be taking action. We should never be using children as the literal detectors of environmental contamination. And our lead in water levels were astronomical. They were in the hundreds and thousands of parts per billion. Mm. Um, There was one home I remember in Flint with a lead level of 22,000 parts per billion. And kind of as a reference, uh, the EPA, recognizing there's no safe level of lead, has set something called a maximum contaminant level goal of zero parts per billion. The American Academy of of Pediatrics recommends one part per billion for for child care facilities and schools. Um, So the focus really needs to be on what's in our environment, not what's in our children. Uh, When we test lead in the blood of children, it's often too late. It has a short detection window. And our screening programs, which I based my research on, were designed to detect lead in household sources, not in water. So it's also a different age of exposure. Um, So there's a lot of nuances to the story. Um, But nobody's saying that Flint has has the worst lead levels in the country. There are zip codes in Detroit. I was in Cleveland last week, Philadelphia, Baltimore, that have higher rates of lead exposure. And it does not mean that what happened in Flint wasn't an injustice. Um, What happened in Flint was a man-made policy decision. Uh, We were literally poisoned by policy. And because of that, it warrants all this attention. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, more of my conversation with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. Dr. Mona, I want to talk a little about the 2016 State of the State Address, uh, where you were in the audience, uh, and this was the first time that Governor Rick Snyder gave any sort of real uh, attention publicly from him to the full effects of the of the water crisis. Let's listen to a clip of his speech that night, and I want to get you to tell us what was going through your mind as he was saying this. To begin, I'd like to address the people of Flint. Your families face a crisis, a crisis you did not create and could not have prevented. I want to speak directly, honestly, and sincerely to let you know we are praying for you, we are working hard for you, and we are absolutely committed to taking the right steps to effectively solve this crisis. To you, the people of Flint, I say tonight, as I have before, I am sorry and I will fix it. No citizen of this great state should endure this kind of catastrophe. Government failed you, federal, state, and local leaders, by breaking the trust you placed in us. I'm sorry most of all that I let you down. You deserve better. You deserve accountability. 
you deserve to know that the buck, buck stops here with me. Most of all, you deserve to know the truth, and I have a responsibility to tell the truth. The truth about what we've done and what we'll do to overcome this challenge. I always think of that moment as one of the most emotional moments uh, I ever saw for Governor Rick Snyder, who we, of course, got to know pretty well over the eight years that he was in office as a pretty stoic guy. Uh, I I wonder, Dr. Mona, as you were sitting there at that moment watching him uh, talk about this, what, what were you thinking? Yeah, you know, it was it was a surreal moment. I I never expected that the state would concede that they would admit their error and and pledge to, you know, work on the recovery. The only perspective I had in this crisis was the Washington DC lead and water crisis which was over a decade ago. And nobody ever there admitted error. Um, nobody was held accountable, and it lasted for years. Um, and there was multiple cover-ups. So when I started this work um, and d- did this research and publicly shared it, and you know was denied, I expected a year, years-long battle to expose the truth and 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 get what Flint kids need. Um, so to hear the governor very emotionally, very publicly um, admit error and pledge to to fight for its recovery um, was was surreal and nothing that I would have expected. Today, when you think about the promises he made at that moment, I will fix it. We will do everything to overcome this challenge. Do you feel like the state has met that obligation? I think it's in process. Um, I, it's, it's long-term work, and, and that was one of the hardest parts about writing this book because the story is nowhere near over. Um, I'm in Flint right now, and we're still on filtered and bottled water mm-hmm. as our pipes are being replaced. But, hey, our pipes are going to be replaced this year, and that's amazing. Um, and we'll be the only third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes. And now, because of Flint, many more cities are following. And, and because of Michigan's new lead and copper rule, you know, the entire state will replace their all their lead pipes in the next 20 years. Um, in terms of what we need for the long-term recovery of children, we're, we're, we're getting there. It's, it's nowhere near complete. We need long-term investments, for example, in early childhood and home visiting and school health resources and nutrition support and health care support. Um, so the, and that has not been guaranteed for the long term. So, so I want to talk a little about what we heard from Attorney General Dana Nessel recently when she said she was going to have to drop all of the charges against officials in the Flint water case. But she also said that she may have to refile charges against the people uh, who are involved and in that they are conducting a new investigation. What was your reaction to that news? So I think like most folks, when you saw those initial headlines, my mouth just dropped, like charges are being dropped. You know, are you kidding me? Um, This has already been a drawn out process of accountability. It's been already going on for over three years. Um, But then I think when you kind of read the articles and and dig deeper, it it may be for a good reason. Um, So it sounds like millions of documents were not uncovered. Many devices were were never uncovered as well. Um, And that the new team, the new Solicitor General, kind of feels like they need to start over uh, to make this investigation as thorough um, and as comprehensive as possible. Um, So I hope that is the case. Um, There's actually a whole chapter in my book called Truth and Reconciliation. Accountability and justice is critical for healing. So as a physician, as somebody who's in Flint every day, working with Flint families, justice is probably one of the most important prescriptions that can be prescribed um, for families here. Justice needs to be served. Mm. And I hope, like the Attorney General said, you know, justice delayed is not justice denied. Yeah. Also, I want to get you to react to her accusations against former AG Bill Schuette. She says he handled this so badly that she had to do it this way and that it was sort of soaked in politics the way he approached uh, this. Was that your impression of the way the investigation had been conducted before? I can't really comment. I don't really kind of have a firsthand impression of, of how it went. I was subpoenaed a few times, but I, you know, I, I don't know the details of those investigations. Once again, I'm a doctor, not a prosecutor. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so uh, in the last few years, we have seen huge regulatory rollbacks and holes oh. 
and staffing at the EPA, which, of course, oversees clean water in this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's your sense of whether that might be inviting more Flint, uh, not just here in Michigan, but across the country? Absolutely. And I think that's why the story of Flint and why this book is so resonant today, because it really speaks to the deeper crises that are happening in our nation. And and one of those is this disrespect for science, the disrespect for facts. I mean, common sense science was denied in Flint. And I, I love to share the story. There was a Flint area fourth grade classroom who repeated, who conducted the experiments on the corrosion um, in, 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 about, regarding the water. So they took Flint water and they took Detroit water and they tested it. And these fourth graders also saw that there was this difference in corrosion control. And these are experiments, for example, the state said was too expensive or that they couldn't conduct. It was too difficult to do. But fourth graders did it. So here, you know, Flint, let Flint serve as this kind of, you know, egregious example of what happens when we disrespect science, mm. and we, it, but also of the power that science and scientists hold and a greater community to speak truth to power. Um, so we're seeing that nationally, not only kind of with our denial of things like climate change and vaccines, but also in these regulations um, that if we learn anything from the Flint story is, is that we need stronger regulations. Um, we need a stronger lead and copper rule. We need a stronger uh, Safe Drinking Water Act, um, especially kind of if we respect history, and there's a lot of history in this book too. Um, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Cuyahoga River fire mm-hmm. um, in Cleveland, which was really the impetus for the Clean Water Act. I mean, we have to, um, we've come a long way. You know, rivers aren't catching on fire as much. Flint River actually has a history of catching on fire twice sure. as well. Um, but we have to kind of follow the science and do what's best to protect public health. Yeah. Um, and we're not there yet. But but awesome and, and really creative innovations are being seen at the state level um, and at local levels because of federal inaction. Yeah. Uh, if you think of the trouble that we're having even this summer, I keep seeing pictures that people are posting on social media of PFAS yeah, uh, showing yeah. up in, in yeah. places where they go to the beach and swim. I mean, your point about how critical this, this issue is now, just at the time that uh, we see this tremendous pushback against science and defunding of the the mechanisms that would keep us safe, it, it really is kind of frightening. Yeah, I, there's quite a bit about this in my book, and I talk about the history, for example, of how lead got into gasoline. And one of General Motors' kind of industry apologists was this guy named Robert Kehoe, who said that if you can prove that tetraethyl lead is dangerous, we'll take it out. Um, and that sets forth something called the Kehoe paradigm, which over a century ago has really governed how we practice in terms of public health and really in terms of regulations that something is safe until proven dangerous. Mm. And that's exactly opposite of common sense, prevention, the precautionary principle, which is how we're governed in medicine by the concept that something should be dangerous until proven safe. (laughs) And because of this philosophy that was set a century ago, um, it it has persisted and it has led to this industry-driven and profitable Profit-driven, um, you know, mechanism where you know we have tons of chemicals out there in our environment um, that are not regulated, and it's really been kind of at the upper hand of industry. And we've also poorly held industry accountable uh, for what they've done. And I think the PFAS uh, disaster is another example. Going back to that initial press conference again from September of 2015. And you talk about what the state and people in the city of Flint need to do to start moving in the right direction and keep themselves safe. Let's listen uh, to a small clip from that. From that. For high-risk groups, especially um, those infants who are on the formula um, and the pregnant moms, we, we would say no tap water. Um, lead clearing filters are a good idea. Um, more public education is needed. Um, and then we would advocate for a connection um, to a Lake Huron water source. Uh, do you feel like uh, those recommendations were heeded by people after you said that? Pretty much. I think we kind of, you can check off almost every single one of them. <laughs> we got that um, right. <laughs> so uh, uh, Senator Stabenow helped us get um, pre-made formula for all our babies on WIC. So um, babies didn't have to mix powdered formula with water or, or it already came pre-mixed. Uh, lead clearing filters were distributed. Um, and once we became a federal emergency, that got distributed even better. Uh, we, within weeks, went back to Great Lakes water. Uh, so uh, there's always room for more education. 
education, even to this day. But by and large, those immediate steps were taken. Hmm. I, I wonder what you think will have to be done to restore trust uh, in state and local leaders, the trust that really got broken during this, this water crisis. What else do you think needs to be done to make people in Flint or in the whole state really believe that leaders have yeah. their best interests in mind? Yeah, and you know, with Flint, that trust wasn't lost just in our water crisis. It was not. it That's was lost right. probably before, yeah. uh, because Flint for years has suffered from disinvestment and uh, you know cuts in revenue sharing and you know population loss and all these other policies, uh, for defunding of our schools that have really left this city and you know in a in that near bankrupt state that then forced it to be taken over by the state. Uh, so that rebuilding of trust is going to take a long long-term commitment uh, to the people of Flint and in the city's full recovery. Uh, so I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a long-term work. It requires a continuation. You know, it's not just about replacing our lead pipes, but it's also about, you know, making sure that kids and families have everything else they need to be healthy and successful. And that, that's from schools to, um, to health care services to safe communities, it's, you know, adequate policing and what have you. Criminal justice is a long list of things that need to happen. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, this trust question comes up a lot. I was speaking with a, a group of philosophers, and this issue of trust came up, and somebody so beautifully said, well, don't you think it's important to always have a healthy dose of mistrust? Mm. And I, I think they're absolutely right. You know, I think part of the problem in Flint was we, a lot of us were maybe too trusting, and we believed that everything the state and the federal government was saying, that the water was fine. I think it's really important for all of us to, to remain curious, to keep our eyes open, to ask questions, and maybe to have a, just a tiny healthy dose of mistrust. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and the, we in the media, of course, yeah. uh, are very familiar with that, uh, <laughs> that healthy yep. dose yep. Of, uh, of mistrust. Yep. I, I also want wonder what you make of the time that's lapsed um, between the crisis and now and whether we've lost focus uh, over that time. I mean, that's always a fear, I think, is that the crisis gets everybody uh, energized to, to meet the challenge. Uh, but over time, everyone, you know, kind of gravitates to other issues or just, just forgets. Are we forgetting about Flint? You know, I think it's natural. There's crazy things happening in the news that warrant our attention, and that's totally understandable. Um, but I think the neat thing that's happened is the incredible power of what Flint has done to the state and national landscape. Um, so, for example, my next phone call is with Newark, New Jersey, who mm. has a, a lead and water crisis right now. The last action level for their city was like 67 parts per billion, and they're passing out filters. And what, what's been really neat is that it's really open people's eyes nationally to issues not only of uh, drinking water issues, but also lead issues, infrastructure, environmental justice issues, children's health issues. Um, so although kind of our acute crisis may have faded from the national news, um, our impact and really the kind of a multiplicative impact of this crisis is, is far-reaching. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, it is always really great to talk with you. Thanks very much for joining us. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the congressman who experienced the Flint water crisis as both a lawmaker and a resident. This Flint story is not just a Flint water story. This is a story of a community that has been left behind in a lot of different ways. And water was just one you know, really significant piece of that story. Representative Dan Kildee experienced the Flint water crisis as both a member of Congress and as a resident. He's fought to make sure the federal and state response offers the residents of Flint some semblance of justice. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation in Flint with Congressman Dan Kildee. Founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Yeah. He is born and raised here in Flint, and from a very familiar political family. He's in his fourth <laughs> term uh, as the representative of the fifth district in Michigan, Dan Kildee. So. 
I, I want to start at the beginning with you. Talk about how you came to understand that, that there was a problem with the water here in Flint. Well, I think, you know, the beginning, day one, I guess, is different for everybody. For, for me, it was uh, something that seemed odd when it occurred, you know, having grown up in Flint, being a Flint kid, when we saw this decision to uh, switch the water source to the Flint River, if you're from Flint, if you grew up here, if it weren't so sad, the result of it, it's kind of, it sounds like the punchline to a joke. The idea would, of switching the that idea water of source. switching to the Flint River. So start with that. That felt like day one to me because I felt like, wow, this is really going off the rails. This was during the period of the emergency financial manager. And it was like one of the first iterations of that law that struck me that there's something that they're able to do using the emergency management law that wouldn't happen if you had democracy in a city. Because even if the city wanted to do it, the public would put the kind of pressure on the city that would prevent them from doing it. So that to me was day one. And then obviously the other problems began. But in the summer of 2015, largely because there were citizens, not public officials, citizens who were leading the effort we began to hear more about the possibility of lead in the drinking water. Uh, and so at some point in that, in that summer, Senator Ananick and I asked for a meeting with the state officials and federal officials to kind of get the lowdown on all this, where they essentially denied that it was a significant problem. And about that same time, going to Dr. Mona, is when the blood data research was published late in that summer, and the whole thing blew up. Yeah. Yeah. She says in the book, for all Flint's problems, we at least had congressional representation. And if Representative Kildee could be brought in, made aware of the lead levels in Flint, we'd have more clout and more options. Uh, talk about the things that you did uh, to respond early on that, that, um, uh, that, were, that were designed to meet the crisis and, and, uh, and push it back. So two things that we did immediately. But the first tangible steps other than just trying to raise public awareness is that I put a call into uh, Governor Snyder and I put a call into Gina McCarthy, who was then the head of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. You've probably seen, I don't know if you have, but if you haven't, you should look at it, the emails that were exchanged within the state government where they had a debate as to whether or not they would answer, the, the governor would return my call because wow. they felt like I, was, I had some other agenda other than, you know, trying to protect the people of my hometown, which seems like a logical thing for an elected representative to do. Uh, ultimately, they did respond. Um, so, and ultimately, the EPA did too. But I think you made a point that I just want to underscore. The reason I reached out to those two entities is that they both had responsibility for what took place. I think the majority of the responsibility clearly, the vast majority, clearly lies with the decisions that were made by the state. But just because of that doesn't mean that everyone else is forgiven. The EPA can't be forgiven for sitting on their hands for as long as they did. With the, exce with the exception of Miguel del Toro, the EPA essentially sat on its hands. And I know I may ruffle feathers when I say this, but those elected officials whose authority had been suspended here in Flint have some responsibility too, because even if their authority was gone, their voices were not. That's, that's where I started. Well, and I remember the photos from that time and that day, the very day of the switch, you had the local officials standing next to the emergency manager. They all had glasses of water in their hands, drinking from them, kind of celebrating this. And there's an historical perspective to, to this story that I think gets lost sometimes. This idea of getting away from Detroit's water right. system is four decades old here in, in Flint. And so I, I always feel like that helped make uh, the decisions that the emergency manager was making a little more palatable maybe to some, some folks. The idea that, okay, we are going to get off Detroit water and, and, and go it alone, ultimately with the, the Karagnagny project. But, but in the meantime, they thought, well, we'll just we'll do it locally. Yeah, and of course that decision was really made as a balance sheet decision. Right. It was to have a temporary significant cost savings between the end of the current Detroit agreement 
and the commencement of water service starting through uh, the new pipeline from Port Huron. And so this was really a balance sheet uh, issue, which kind of gets to, I think, what is the underlying problem here? The, the, the Flint story is not just a Flint water story. This is a story of a community that has been left behind in a lot of different ways. And water was just one you know, really significant piece of that story. And if it were just water that was the problem, then we'd be in a much different position that we're in. And I don't mean to dwell on this point, but so often uh, during this crisis, when we were at the very beginning of it, in fact, trying to figure out, well, what we need to do to make things right in Flint, there was talk about, well, we got to get Flint back to where we were before that switch was made. And my answer was, no. We don't want to go back to where we were before the switch was made because that's a really bad place. The fact is, the reason that Flint, the Flint water crisis was such a crisis is that it was a community that was just right on the edge and was one mistake away from going into the kind of free fall that this water crisis precipitated. But I don't want to go back to the point where we're just one mistake away from another free fall. We have, we have really big fundamental problems that yeah. need to be addressed. So, so now, five years later, give us your assessment of, of where we are, not just with the water question, but these other bigger questions that, uh, that you're raising. Yeah, so on the water question, I think one, a couple of points. One that I think is really important to make. People from outside of Flint need to stop telling folks that things are better, they're okay, or that the water's fine. Because... The biggest loss in all of this is the fact that for reasons that are legitimate, people can't trust what the government is telling them. The idea that we can say, okay, erase the history, now we're telling you the truth, now you can actually trust what we're saying, is just a complete fallacy and it's an insult to the people of Flint and what they've gone through. So let's start with the idea that Flint's recovery is far, far from over and it's going to take a lot more than infrastructure changes. It's going to take something that will take, I'm sure, a very long time, and that's the rebuilding of some modicum of trust between the people and the institutions of government that they rely on. So that's a backdrop that I think has to sort of pervade the entire conversation. People need to stop telling Flint to move on because we're still in it. That's number one. Secondly, the recovery for Flint out of this crisis can't be just about getting to the place where we have clean drinking water because the lack of clean drinking water was not the only consequence of the crisis. There was a psychological impact that is still being felt, anxiety and anger that's experienced by people here all the time that continues to be a problem. There was a really significant economic hit that this community took. Even though we already have struggled economically as the result of really four decades of decline uh, due to changes in, in the way the global economy affects places like Flint, this really hurt us further. Any potential new opportunity went away. I know specifically of development uh, opportunities that were on the, sort of in the pipeline, maybe not the right term to use, um, <laughs> that were coming <laughs> that you know, went someplace else. It's hard to figure out what the real loss was, but we know there was a real economic hit. And then the physical and emotional and direct impact of high levels of lead exposure, the fact that people died as a result of the Legionnaires issue, the fact that we don't really have a full sense of what that looked like mm -hmm. and what the data will really show on, on greater review, we're a long way from being through this. And the result, or the fix, I should say, is not just about getting us back to having trustable, clean drinking water. It's about repairing all the other damage that the crisis created. Yeah. And I'm really curious what your assessment now in hindsight is of how Governor Snyder, who, whose administration was responsible for uh, the emergency manager who made this decision, um, uh, by the time he left office, obviously he'd, he'd focused in on, on, the, on the crisis, acknowledged uh, the things that had happened. But did you feel like by the time he left office, he'd done most or all of the things that could be done to, to put Flint back on the, the right track? No, not at all. You know, I'll give you like one very good example. Flint was in financial receivership 
because the state of Michigan made a decision to eliminate direct support for the city of Flint. The fact that the state had to take the city over was the direct result of decisions that the state itself had made to unbalance the city's budget by balancing their own with money that was intended for city governments. The, the fact that you know, we in Congress um, took a while, uh, we're able to get significant resources, but the resources come through the state. I think once in a while I get a little frustrated hearing about the state money when it's the state money that the federal government sent to the state for the purposes of repairing a lot of this infrastructure. Uh, that was an act of Congress. That was the last bill signed by President Barack Obama before he left office. So, no, they haven't done nearly enough. Not nearly enough, because, and, here, and here's, the, I think, the most important point of this. When you do something to a community like this, and it's clear, like I said before, the state committed the acts. The other failures had, the re, had uh, I think, are, are more better characterized by the lack of action to deal with the result of that decision that was made. EPA should have done a lot more. Others should have stepped out much, much more aggressively. But the state committed the acts that caused this problem. When you do that, you have a responsibility to, to sort of flood the zone, to go beyond what is minimally required to undo the direct harm that you caused, but to do more than just you know, fix the pipes. Uh, they have an obligation, I think, to the city of Flint that's going to last for a long time because the result of this is going to last for a long time. And I don't think they've done nearly enough. Mm. Uh, so now we have a new governor, a, a Democrat, Gretchen Whitmer. Talk about the things that, that you have noticed in terms of how that administration might be dealing with this differently. Well, I think the conversation between the city and the state is a fundamentally different conversation because the state is no longer in a position of treating this like a public relations problem, which is largely what, the way I think Governor Snyder addressed it, not so much as a, a problem. Um, I mean, I think it remains to be seen what else will come. And I know that our state uh, legislators are pushing hard. I've had a lot of discussions with the governor on this. Um, getting the governor and the Republican legislature together on anything, whether it's fixing the roads or doing something more for Flint is a tall order, uh, but I have a lot more confidence that she will understand that she has to do something. I mean, the thing that, that, that frustrates me, at least, about Lansing is that no matter who's governor and or no, no matter which party is in control, this, this conversation about municipal finance and how broken it is in the state doesn't get beyond kind of a preliminary acknowledgement that yeah. uh, that things are are broken. I mean, the, the the cuts to revenue sharing that you're talking about were enacted by Governor Granholm, who was a Democrat, along you know Governor Engler before her started them, but she continued them as a way of, of balancing the budget. She wouldn't lean in on the idea of, hey, there's got to be a different way to do this to fund cities. I had that argument with Rick Snyder I don't know how many times that the system was broken and that what we needed to do was re-examine that. He, he was no, no more accommodating of that than, uh, than the Democrats were. Yeah, and the problem with this issue is that it gets wonky, like really a policy wonkish really fast. And I've spent a lot of my career working on this, but let's just put it in real clear terms. We don't fund cities in a manner that's necessary to maintain the basic elements of a civil society. And so the idea that there's no consequence to that is ridiculous. We don't have the basic funding in place. Think about it. We don't have the basic funding in place to keep a community from facing some kind of crisis. When you don't have parks that are maintained and mowed, when you have streets and water systems that are crumbling, when there's not adequate police and fire. Forget about all the other things like recreation, you know, economic development, all the things that are really important to keep a community moving forward. We have a very dangerous municipal finance system that rewards communities that are in the period of expansion and growth. But once a community begins to hit some sort of stasis, they can't survive. The issue in Michigan, and it's true in a lot of other places, is that if we don't figure out that we're not providing the basic elements of civil society in communities, in one, in one place it's going to be water. 
In some other community, it's this sort of very sad, almost invisible death of a thousand cuts where kids just don't have opportunity. And you never hear about it, it never makes a headline, it's never on Rachel Maddow, but it's just this sort of really sad, slow loss of optimism or hope that young people growing up in these really, really difficult places experience. And the downstream cost is told in a thousand stories of tragedy. And it just never bubbles up to the attention of the public the way a water crisis does. Yeah. I want you to talk a little about your personal journey through all of this. As I said, you're a Flint native and you represent this community in, in, in Washington. What has this been like for you? It's been, I just as a Flint kid, first of all, but also as a public official, you know, we're all subject to sort of the same assumptions. I always operated on the assumption you turn on the tap and the water's okay. You know, I mean, why would you think otherwise? That's just sort of our conditioning. And so it's caused me as a public official to not take anything like that for granted anymore. And so just to answer your question more directly, it's caused me to go down a road on this issue of something as fundamental as drinking water and find out, uh, to mix my metaphors, that lead in water is just the tip of the iceberg. We've got all sorts of problems in drinking water in this country that people really need to wake up to. What this has really done for me is shaken my confidence that what we have taken for granted, the fundamental elements of community, something as fundamental as drinking water, in the 21st century, in the richest country in the world, can't be taken for granted. And we have to return to those really fundamental questions about what we need to do to make sure that those elements of civil society are in place. So that's what I've been spending a lot of my time in Washington working on. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. 